Right. Can everybody, can everybody hear me all right? Okay. Um, just a warm welcome to everybody. Um, here we've just had our first service, which was, um, was, was lovely and uh, enjoyed the presence of God there. Um, I'm just, I've entitled my um, message today, Fight the Good Fight. Now, for some of you who are old like me, you'll remember that as the title of an old hymn, Fight the Good Fight with All Your Might, which I'm rather glad we don't sing these days. It's got a terrible tune. Um, my cynical husband says this is a hymn that should be sung at every wedding. Um, let's fight the good fight. <laughs> um, but following on from what our pastor spoke wonderfully last week about the unconditional love of God through the prophet um, Hosea, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about God's unconditional love through um, the battles that Jesus faced, and particularly one battle. We're going to watch a little bit of um, film in a minute. But I'd just like to start just as we could pray together. So um, let's just pray. Dear Father, Lord, as we um, tackle your word and, and, and preach about your word just now, Lord, I just pray, Father, that it'll be your words. Um, Lord, we just pray for your presence with us. Lord, we just pray, Father, you will speak to our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of your wonderful word. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to start just by showing a clip of a movie, Passion of the Christ, and it's the clip showing Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think we all know, wonderful though our salvation is, and when we come to Christ, our salvation is totally free. We all know that. Who knows that? And we come to God and we're saved by grace and by the unconditional love of God. But we also know, and I know in my own life, that the Christian life itself, the Christian walk, can be a battle. And that can be a big battle. Sometimes it's a little battle. We face our daily little battles. Um, your daily little battle may be just getting up in the morning in time and setting your alarm clock so you can plan to come to church on time. We need some light. Is there any more light at the back there? I can't, at the moment, I can't see anybody. <laughs> Maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> Um, that's better, thank you. Um, I have um, one, actually it's a bit of a facetious battle, but like many of you out there can identify this, I battle with my weight at times. And um, I have to tell you, I have three sets of bathroom scales. <laughs> and depending on my mood, I'll choose one to go on. In fact, I have to tell you, I have got a bathroom scale that if you set it on the right bit of carpet... It will take 10 kilos off your weight <laughs> immediately. Um, and that sometimes we want the easy way out, don't we? Um, especially trying to lose weight. There aren't any easy answers, unfortunately. Um, I want to start with a um, scripture that's actually not on the screen. But it, for only, anybody taking notes, it's Psalm 78, verses 9 to 11. And it says this, O warriors of Ephraim, though armed with bows, they turned their backs and they fled on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his instructions. They forgot what he had done and the great wonders he had shown them. It's a very sad scripture. These were warriors. They had the right weapons in their hands, but they didn't use them. They, instead, they turned and fled. And that's because they didn't know enough about the word of God. They didn't keep God's covenant, and they forgot what God had done in their lives. How often that is like me and you in our Christian lives. And as we go through our Christian lives, we do have our own fights, our own battles, even our own Gethsemanes, if we like. 
And if you look at that clip, in the Garden of Gethsemane, there were two battles going on. There was Jesus' battle, which we know that he won, but there was also a battle going on in the lives of his disciples, which at that point, they lost. And the Christian journey is often described in the language of fighting. The Apostle Paul says to his son Timothy, in, the, in, in his letter to Timothy, he says to his spiritual son, fight the good fight of faith. And he says later on, I have fought a good fight, he says. He says also in Ephesians 6, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, he talks about putting on the armor of God. And the armor of God is both defensive, but we also have the sword of the spirit, which is offensive. So we have to fight battles. It's not something we would like to do, we'd rather not do often. But sometimes Christianity has a cost. We have to pick up our crosses daily and follow him. Jesus himself talks about working hard to get through a narrow gate and not sort of by default just sauntering our way without thinking too much through the, a, a broad gate and a broad road. And how we fight our battles, the little ones, particularly the daily ones, will determine how we get through the big ones. And I want to talk here a little bit about probably if you were face-to-face with Jesus in the flesh today and you asked Jesus, what was the hardest point, the most difficult time of your time on earth? He would probably point to this two hours he spent in the Garden of Gethsemane because this is where he faced his biggest psychological test prior to going to the cross. It was the biggest battle. And as we talk about this, um, I want to take us back really to, it was around AD 31 to 33. The place was Jerusalem, which was the capital of Palestine in those days, which was an unpopular outpost of the Roman Empire. And it was the time of the annual Passover feast, where Jerusalem would have been absolutely bulging, filled to the hilt with people, hundreds of thousands of visitors crowding every spare corner, every spare room. And if you've got your Bibles with you, which I hope you have, if you're good Christians, um, I want you to turn to Matthew 26 and verse 30. We're going to allude to the story in the other Gospels as well, particularly the Gospel of Luke. So Matthew 26, verse 30. Now the events leading up to this was that Jesus and his disciples had had their Passover feast together. If you look at the account in the Gospel of Luke, um, as usual, and as often the case, which must have been very disheartening to Jesus because he knew what was coming, was the disciples were again having a fight, a discussion, a quarrel over who was the greatest amongst them, who was going to hold the greatest position when Jesus came into it. Because at that time, they still helped, hoped and believed that he would have an earthly kingdom, that he was going to come to raise up the people and throw the Romans out. Um, so that, was, the, that was, was their quarreling. Jesus' response to that, if you look at the scriptures prior to this, was that Jesus um, took off his outer garments. He didn't say anything. He put on a, an apron, if you like, a towel, and he washed their feet, which was the job of a very, very menial slave. And he said his last words to them. If you look at the end of the Gospel of John, there are several chapters there of Jesus talking to them about love, about unity, about abiding in him, about loving other people. And, um, and, and he continued talking to them as they went on this journey. So Matthew 26, verse 30, they, at the end of this, as, as customary, they sang a hymn, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives, which is where Jesus and his disciples often went in the evenings for a bit of peace and quiet. And Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. 
Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Now, if you read the account in Luke, at this point also, Jesus says to Peter, and he addresses, he addresses Peter directly, is um, Satan has asked to sift you, Peter, but I have prayed for you, not that you'll get out of everything, but your faith will not fail, he says to Peter. And then, truly I tell you, going back to this passage, truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, and he meant it, even though I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. They did in their hearts as human beings. They had a love and a loyalty to Jesus. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to him, them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell down with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, as you will. Now, Jesus must have known, he would have known at that time that that was not possible. He had been talking about what he would have to go through. But in his humanity, his distress was so great as he faced, knew what he had to face. He turns to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so you will not fall into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He came back again and found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And again, if you look in the Gospel of Luke for this similar account, you'll find a couple of additional details. One is that an angel came and strengthened him. And I often look at that, I find that very encouraging. I thought, well, if Jesus needed strengthening by an angel, if Jesus needed his friends with him going through his Garden of Gethsemane, how can we possibly think we don't need help from spiritual help, supernatural help, when we're going through our Gardens of Gethsemanes? And then he returns to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. As I said, Luke adds um, a couple of details. Um, in Luke twenty-two forty-three, it says, An angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. And he prayed more fervently, Luke adds, Luke was a medical doctor, remember, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. Jesus' stress and agony was so great at this point that the little blood capillaries under his skin burst and the blood mixed with his sweat. Now, we have to remember as we watch these events, and the vast majority, hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem at that time would have been totally oblivious pretty well to what was happening. But in the heavenlies and on the earth at this point, there was coming to a culmination, to a fulfillment of God's plan and purpose. God had a plan from the beginning of time to save us. And it was, a, it was a plan that he planned to every detail. It was a meticulous plan. And every detail of that plan was being fulfilled at this time. Uh, the, the plan had been prophesied over thousands of years in the Old Testament. And here's some scriptures that you should see on the screen that just confirm this. John 1, 1 and 14. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. 
verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And even in this agonizing, distressing scene in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' glory was being fulfilled. Luke 12, verse 50, Jesus talking to his disciples earlier on, I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me. He knew what awaited him, and I am under heavy burden until it is accomplished. Luke 22, 37, just before this event, it is written, Jesus said, that he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you, this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. God's plan was taking place and was coming to fulfillment. Ephesians 3, 9 to 11, after the resurrection, in the early church, this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, Paul was saying, I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. And God's purpose in all this was to use the church. And just want to pause there a minute because there was a reason why Satan targeted Peter. Um, as, As he targeted all the disciples, but particularly Peter. I'm going to sift you. Satan says. And the reason was is that Peter was going to be the pivotal person for the formation of the church. We need to pray and build up and hold up our pastors because they are, they will be the focus point for Satan's attack. Satan has a plan and he wants, he doesn't, he wants to destroy the church. That's his plan. Is this church any church? And he will go for the leaders. He will always go for the leader. So we need to bear in mind that we need to pray and support our senior pastors. And particularly, as I said, pray, cover them in prayer. So God's purpose to use the church to display his wisdom. That was God's purpose in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, earlier on this week, I was um, buying my... I mean, in this congregation, I'm going to say my vegetables and fruit in a local supermarket. And I met an old acquaintance, wasn't not a friend, but somebody I've sort of bumped into over the years, um, a Christian. And uh, she said to me, oh, well, Tanya, how's your, how's your church doing? And I said, oh, my church. I love my church. It's wonderful. It's not perfect because it's full of people like me, but it's wonderful. It's great. I love it. I love the people in it. And then she turned around and she said to me, oh, I've met so many people who hate your church. And I, I just, I was, I was, I was lost for words. I mean, it's not like me, but I was. So I politely asked her how her church was doing. And she said, oh, my church. She said, I've been trying to leave it for 20 years. <laughs> and I thought, I thought to my lady, you may be a Christian, but you're not walking in the plan and purpose of God at this point. You know, none of our churches are perfect, but they are the plan of God. Yes. <laughs> and so, um, bless her. Um, so anyway, if we look at this story, and we've seen in the, in the clip there, there are lots of people in this story who've got plans. And I just want to go through some of them. And they are plans that human people, you know, we're talking about AD 31, 33, but people are the same. They were the same then and they're the same now. And most people, as I said, in Jerusalem, hundreds of thousands of them would have been oblivious to God's eternal plan that was coming to fruition then. They were, um, these events were a little bit of a blip to them. Now, they may have had a passing acquaintance with Jesus. They may have known him, a bit about him. Some of them may have even benefited from his miraculous um, blessings and power. But after all, the Romans arrested and crucified lots of Jews. 
and, um, and therefore what was so special about Jesus. And at that time and that evening, Jerusalem, as I said, would have been absolutely crowded. It was evening time. The Passover meal was finished. There were lots of lamps outside of the houses swinging. The streets were thronging with people waiting for the temple to open, which it would have done about midnight at that time. And, um, and people probably um, going to the temple was a religious duty. And many people would have treated God and treated Jesus a bit like many of us do. And I include myself in that at times. We treat him a bit like our bank manager. So we go to the bank when we need to when we need some money, when we need some help. Otherwise, we sort of manage without it. And um, that would have been... So they, if, if it had been today, they would have been there with their phones and their selfies, taking lots of pictures, and oblivious to that group of men who were quietly winding their way through the streets. There was a lot of human active hostility. We have Judas, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Remember, Jesus had just washed his feet. He loved Judas. But Judas was not getting what he expected and what he wanted from the gospel. Judas was greedy, he was power hungry, and Jesus was not fulfilling his expectations. Jesus was not throwing the Romans out. There was not going to be a human, earthly kingdom that he could make money out of and he could gain influence in. So he was bitter and disappointed. So Judas had hurried off to the high priests and the religious leaders with a plan that they could arrest Jesus in peace and quiet without the risk of a riot, which is what they feared. The high priests and religious rulers were also greedy and power-hungry, and they were worried about Jesus' popularity and his message. So behind the scenes, as this group of men quietly go through the streets, as I said, to the, heading off for the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. Judas is, is, is um, talking to the high priest. They're hurriedly sending a delegation, probably to Pontius Pilate, who was the religious, to the, the Roman ruler of that day. Pontius Pilate, I sometimes feel a bit sorry for. Um, he was a conflicted person. He knew the right thing to do it, but didn't have the courage to follow it through. Um, because of the consequences. Um, Jerusalem at that time was not a popular place to be posted to if you were a Roman ambassador, if you like. It would be a bit like being a British ambassador and being told you had to go to Kabul or Baghdad or somewhere like that. It was really unpopular because it was seen as a trouble spot. Um, so they would have already gone to Pontius Pilate to collect some Roman soldiers and they would have all probably gone first to the upper room where, where Judas had left them. But finding it empty, this mob of people, hangers-on, priests, Roman soldiers, temple guards, headed down to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then we have Jesus and his 11 disciples quietly make their way through the crowds to Gethsemane. It would have been about a 40-minute walk. They leave the city by the north gate, and if you go to Jerusalem these days, you actually can see the steps which they've excavated where they think Jesus and his disciples would have walked down when they left the city they would have left the, the noise and bustle of the city into the darkness of the Kidron Valley, across the Kidron River, and just turned left. And then they would have found themselves at the Mount of Olives and the Olive Press, which is what Gethsemane means. Jesus left eight of the 11 disciples at the gate and took his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, in with him, who will be the future pillars of the church. They are described as that in the book of Galatians. And they had been present with him at his transfiguration, seen his glory. And they did feel unaccountably sad, a bit confused, tired, like we do often after a bad day. How often have you fallen asleep when probably you shouldn't have done because tiredness just overtakes. I can see the yawns out there. <laughs> and what's very evident from that clip from the Passion of the Christ and from the scriptures is that the disciples were ill-prepared for the battle that they faced. 
They didn't know what was going to happen. They weren't prepared for it. And Jesus had already told them, and especially Peter, that they would fail. So their hearts were loyal and they had a degree of human courage, but they were still full of self-will and a degree of pride. And then we have the unseen spiritual forces, both in heaven and in hell. You can imagine, as heaven watched this, there were legions, thousands of angels on standby, watching with a degree of awe of what was unfolding beneath them. And then the full forces of hell gathered to unleash themselves upon Jesus. And the three disciples, and especially Peter, would feel the heat from some of this battle. Luke 22, verse 53, Jesus says when he was um, arrested, every day I was with you in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Jesus acknowledged that the presence of, of darkness was there. So the battle Jesus faced, the, the, the words that these scriptures use, especially in Matthew and Luke, but also in the Gospel of Mark, are very, very difficult to translate adequately into English. But needless to say, it describes a really, really anguished, emotional, um, psychological battle that Jesus faced here. The words used are anguished, emotional, a very visceral, physical thing, grief, pain, terrified, struck with horror, intensely sad are how the various words translate. Um, and there's also some meaning in these words, the word astonished, that some of this took Jesus by surprise. He expected a battle, but he didn't realize the full force of evil and darkness that would fall upon him in these hours. And why did this happen? Well, the source of Jesus's pain, and after all, he knew this was coming, was something described as the cup. Remember, Jesus was human. He was fully divine, but fully human. So he had a human body, just like we did. He had the same skin, the same nerve endings, um, and he would have had the same physical horror of crucifixion as any of us would do with the knowledge of that was coming. So there was a prospect of 18 hours of severe physical and severe spiritual pain. He would take upon himself the sins of the whole world on that cross, which meant that he would be the first time in the whole of eternity he would be abandoned by his father, by God. And the intensity of that in the garden and the thought of that in the garden it almost killed him. Just the thought of that. He was abandoned by his disciples and by his friend. And on the cross, he was abandoned by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried on the cross. We read in that verse in Luke that the first drops of Jesus' blood were shed here in the garden for us. As I said, Luke 22, verse 44, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. He also faced a choice and a dilemma, like all of us do, when we're going through our own Garden of Gethsemane. We face a choice. Do we stay and fight, or do we run? Jesus could have said no, and that's a horrible, ghastly thought, isn't it? But he did have a choice. He could have said no. And Satan met and tempted Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane like he had tempted him in the desert at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In the same way, actually, he says he tempts all of us um, along the lines of, oh, you don't have to do this. There's an easier way to get through the problem. Satan will always appeal to our flesh and to our emotions. And it's interesting, in, in, in Jesus' first temptation, right at the beginning of his ministry in the desert, Satan says to Jesus, um, okay, well, you want a relationship with these human beings. There's a much easier way. Just worship me, 
and I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. You can rule over them by force, by coercion, by power, by punishment. And Jesus said no to that. God's unconditional love meant that we needed saving. And Jesus went to the cross to die for us so that he could have a relationship of unconditional love and forgiveness with us. Satan always has an alternative plan. And he tried to present that plan again to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Come on, Jesus, you don't need to do this. You can't do this. It's too much for you. It's too much pain. And Matthew 26, verse 53 says, Do you think I cannot call on my father? Jesus says later, when his disciples started swinging swords around, when the people came to arrest him. And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. He had a choice. So what did Jesus do? He fell on his face to God and cried to him. Jesus chose obedience over his emotions. Not my will, he says to God, but yours. Not my will. And Jesus says the only way for him to avoid this cup is not to run away from it, but to drink the contents by obedience. This was not a pretty um, prayer. Hebrews 5, verse 7 to 9 says, While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Romans 5 verse 19 says, Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. And then, as we've always said again, that Jesus was strengthened by an angel. The Greek word for this word strengthened is a word that's very physical. It's a sort of word that um, if you were collapsed on the ground and you're totally run out of physical strength and mental strength, um, somebody comes along and, you know, gives you a, an injection of energy and blood transfusion and a pile of chocolate and anything else that you need um, to make you better, to get up physically strengthened and psychologically and spiritually strengthened. And as I've said, if Jesus needed this in his Garden of Gethsemane, how much more we need it when we're going through the battles we face. So how else does this apply to me and to you? Well, the one thing it screams at me is the uniqueness and greatness of our salvation. Um, I don't know about you, but in the course of my life and in my work particularly, I've met and deeply respected people from other walks of life, other beliefs, other religions. But however much, and there can be an element of truth in their beliefs, to be, you know, if there was another way to God, don't you think Jesus wouldn't have had to go through this? Um, if you could get to God through Confucius or Buddha or Muhammad or um, a myriad of other gurus or through self-help or just by being good and being as good as you possibly could, which is what most people instinctively think, if I just do my best, I'll be okay, then don't you think Jesus would have rightly bottled out of this? Or why do I need to go through all this? But there is no other way. So much as we respect people who believe differently, and we do, the Bible tells us to do that, there is only one way to God. We need saving, all of us, however good we are, we think we are. We all need saving. And as I said, um, people I've often talked to say, well, 
um, see, see, see life as a, as, a, as, a, as a set of scales. You know, you have evil on one side of my life and good on the other. And if I can, by trying really hard and doing good, I can get the good bit to be heavier than the bad bit, then God will accept me. And that sort of humanly makes sense, accepting it's grossly unfair and unjust if you think about it, because many of us find it easier to be good than others, don't we? Depends very much who we are, our personalities, um, our backgrounds, where we come from, um, what, what we've gone through, especially in our childhood. It's much, much easier for some people to be. It would be very, very unfair if that was the case. Thankfully for all of us, it's not the case. So if you are here and you think you're a failure, you're absolutely right. Um, so am I. And if you're here and you think you're not a failure, then you're absolutely wrong. Because in our own human flesh, we're all failures. The great news about the gospel is God does not intend for us to remain that way. And we'll come to that in a minute. And then all battles are won on our knees. Every single battle. There's no battle you'll ever face that you can win with God, not on your knees. Um, crying out to God. And most of us, and I include that myself in that, we simply do not pray enough. Um, um, in the good times and the bad times. Um, I, 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 I'm a very blessed person and I will look at my life sometimes and I think, oh, life is good at the moment. But then immediately I start to battle because I think, well, life is good at the moment. That must mean there's some bad around the corner <laughs> because that's what we think like, isn't it, as, as human beings. So we need to be on our knees crying out to God. And as I said, most of us do not pray enough. I had a, a bit of a fretful week this week because I'd met this acquaintance. And that really disturbed my spirit. I thought, goodness me. And, and, that, that, and I, then I met somebody else and it had a similar effect on my spirit. And, and you know how when you meet somebody like that, you go through your head well, what you should have said to them? Yeah. <laughs> you think, oh, if only I could live that scene again. I'd, I'd give them a little bit of sound wisdom. Um, and I was fretting out this, and it was, it was distracting me and disturbing me. And I thought, oh, dear, I'll look, just open the Bible. And it was one of my daily reading notes. And this verse came out, and it was just, you know sometimes how the word of God just hits you straight in the forehead? And it was that verse many of you will be familiar with from the story of Mary and Martha. Martha, you're distracted by many worries, but go and do what Mary does and sit at the feet of Jesus. And that's often what we need to do. Um, Philippians 4 verse 6 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, it doesn't say some situations or situation where you feel um, up to it, it says in every situation, the less you feel like it, the more you should do it, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, don't be like the men of Ephraim who forgot what God had done for them, so with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And remember when, when, when the Apostle Paul was writing this to the church at Philippi, he was actually in prison facing his own death. So this was not, would not in a human sense be an easy verse for him to write. But this is what he practiced. And then the other thing that struck me when looking at this is being prepared. Um, it's very, very noticeable that the disciples, and who can identify with the disciples? I would have been asleep. I, I, you know, it, they, they, they were going through a difficult time and they, a lot of uncertainty and sorrow and Jesus had been saying these things, what does it mean? You know, they had a long day. The disciples lost this battle um, because they weren't prepared. Um, we need to follow God's plan and not Satan's plan and that's on a daily basis. And that will involve, as I said, lots of little battles, particularly, and I speak to myself here, I have one finger pointing out there. I have three pointing back at myself. That's always the case. Avoiding laziness. Avoiding laziness. And becoming increasingly conscious of the majesty of God. Um, being prepared 
in the little things can mean things like setting your alarm clock half an hour earlier on a Sunday morning so you get to church on time. It can mean switching off, and this is what I'm speaking to myself, Netflix and YouTube um, and stop prevaricating about, well, I'll do the Bible bit later on. I've got another five hours before bedtime. It means switching it off now and putting the word of God first. It's those little things, quote unquote, that will determine what happens when we face something really major. Um, two, two, two years ago, my dad um, was privileged to meet the Queen. And the Queen was in Leicester for something called the Maunday service, which is a long English tradition that goes back to some 1200 or something. I won't go into the history of it. Um, that she was visiting Leicester Cathedral. And, um, and the tradition is that um, a couple of hundred people who are the same age as her are chosen to receive a little gift from her in the cathedral of the city that she's visiting. And my dad was one of those people. And for his, now his meeting with the Queen lasted roughly three seconds. I can show you the picture to prove it. But in preparation for his meeting with Her Majesty the Queen, who I deeply respect, but is a human being like the rest of us, Her Majesty the Queen, for his three seconds meeting with her, the preparation was just amazing. My dad had to go to a run-through meeting before the real meeting. So he had to, with all these other people, they had to take on a bus, they had to go to the Leicester City Town Hall, and they were, had to do a pretend Monday service and go through everything meeting. Mobile phones, absolutely forbidden. No mobile phone near the place. You had to be on time. Goodness me, you wouldn't dare to be late to meeting the Queen. And I will bet you anything that there were probably one or two people who didn't make it. But boy, to, make it, to not make it to meet the Queen, you would have been half dead, wouldn't you, really? You would have been um, actually bed-bound. And yet, when we have an appointment to meet the King of Kings... In church on Sunday, what do I do? Oh, it doesn't matter if I'm a bit late. God won't mind. Um, if I've got a message on my mobile, I'll fiddle with my mobile during the service. Pre-prayer, okay, I feel a bit tired. I won't bother with it this week. And we'll miss meeting with his majesty, the king of the universe, on the flimbiest of pretexts. I have missed church on account of a headache before that I probably wouldn't have missed work for or I certainly wouldn't have missed meeting the Queen for. Now, I know stuff happens. You know, if I have a full-blown migraine, there's no way I'd meet the Queen, go to work, or be at church. So stuff happens. I'm not, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I've some, occasionally in the past missed church because I was just extremely tired. It was my flesh just failed. How many of us can confess to doing that? It wouldn't have kept me from work because I would have been in trouble. And it certainly wouldn't keep me from meeting the Queen that's true, isn't it? That's true. We treat his majesty, the king of kings, the lord of the universe, actually with, with a degree of contempt. We wouldn't dare face a three-second meeting with her majesty, the queen of England. And that just struck me as I was reading this. So we'll sit, I will, I'll sit on Netflix, YouTube, and postpone the presence of Jesus until later on. A bit like Martha. And it's not bad things that keep us away. Sometimes it's good things, like Martha was doing. She was preparing. I do like that story, actually. She was preparing. It's the only time when Jesus comments on a woman's work in the home and tells her to stop doing it, which I think is a really lesson. Um, and um, our elder Lee at Tuesday Night Live this week talked about the danger of just sitting around 
fiddling away, frittering time away. And we think that's a new problem. It isn't. If you listen to some of the old Puritan preachers like Jonathan Edwards or more later, C.H. Spurgeon, they had exactly the same problem. They used to have to tell people, stop wasting time, stop being lazy, <laughs> get to church on time, read your Bibles, fight, 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 don't run. Luke 9.23, Jesus says this, he says to them all, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up the cross daily and follow me. And I find this, this is hard work. We have to work at this every day. It's, it's, it's a wonderful reward in the end. The relationship with Jesus is like no other. But it is our responsibility, and I increasingly feel as I get a little bit older, that my Christian life increasingly has to be all or nothing. I can't be a half-hearted, I can't be one of those crowds of people in Jerusalem that day who had a passing acquaintance with Jesus, just nodded to him when they needed him, went to the bank when they needed money, but otherwise they tended to live life as if he wasn't there. Um, the Reverend John Piper, who is a well-known Bible commentator and pastor in the States, says the desire to be at home and just sit means we are a sitting duck for the devil. I thought that was quite good and pertinent. But, and this is a very, very big but, our failure, and I've said we're all failures in ourselves, is never, ever the end. It's never the end. Jesus simply doesn't see us like that. And Jesus knows, and I find this so comforting in my own failures and in my own Gethsemanes, Jesus knows and understands our weakness. When he came to the disciples when they'd been falling asleep and not praying as they should, he didn't hit them over the head with a hammer and say, you lousy, failing disciples, you should be in hell for the way you're behaving. Didn't I tell you to do this and you disobeyed me and look what's going to happen now? No, he didn't. He understood exactly where they were coming from. He says, I know, I know your spirits are willing. I know that down be, you want to do the right thing, but your flesh is weak. So he did not deal with them with harshness. He dealt them with love and with understanding. Matthew 26, 41. Again, watch and pray, he says, so that you will not fall into temptation. Be alert. Pray. Don't be like the men of Ephraim. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's why we have to watch and pray, because our flesh is weak. Hebrews 2 verse 18 actually when I was having these rather negative encounters with people this week I went home and I thought right I'm preaching on Sunday I've got to do something right so I, went, <laughs> so I got my Bible out and I read the whole book of Hebrews from beginning to end so that's why you've got some quotes from Hebrews which are wonderful Hebrews 2 verse 18 because he himself suffered when he was tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted Hebrews 4 verse 15 for we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are and yet he did not sin Romans 8:34 who then is the one who condemns no one Jesus Christ who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So we not only have a Jesus who knows and understands our weaknesses, he is actually standing at the right hand of God praying for us. He prays for us, he cheers us on, he says, come on, you can do it. Fight, don't run, fight, don't run, fight, don't run, because I am with you. Luke 22:31. we've already said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. I love this because Jesus is not saying to Simon, you're going to have a lovely, comfortable life as a Christian. He doesn't say to him, I'm going to get you out of the situation. He has said that the situation you're in, I'm praying for you, Simon. 
Satan has asked to sift you, but you're going to come out of this stronger because I see you, not in your failure, but I see what I'm going to make of you, what's going to become of you. And so he, at the same time he tells Peter that he's in his flesh, he's going to fail, he at the same time says to him, gives him his future commission. And this is what I want you to do. When you have repented, when you've come back to me and turned to me again, go off and strengthen your brothers. Start to do the work that I've got for you, Peter. Don't run. Don't run. Fight. And, it, and as I said, Peter, it's interesting in this verse, Jesus uses Peter's old name here, the name of his old flesh, Simon, and correctly predicts his failure. In fact, Peter has several failures. And Peter, like Judas, could have fallen, but Jesus was praying for him. Jesus went beyond his present situation, his present heart, and sees what he will become, because Jesus is in the, in the position always of changing our hearts. I'm going to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Peter like us, had to be emptied of his pride and self-sufficiency, ready to be filled with the Holy Spirit and take up his daily cross. And that's literally, Peter did that because Peter died as a martyr many years later and he was crucified. And this bit I also um, love is the last phrase that we read in this passage and I'm indebted again to reading John Piper's comments on this. Matthew 26, 45 to 46 Jesus says to them, arise and let's go. Now, it's interesting because at this point, for several minutes before this, Jesus would have heard the mob coming. It was quiet in the garden, and he could have heard them approaching from quite a distance away, the crowd of soldiers, temple guards, whatever, coming to arrest him. He would have, in the darkness, he would have seen their lights bobbing away in the distance. But he doesn't tell his disciples to run and hide themselves and protect themselves. And he doesn't say that to us either. Don't run. Don't run. Don't give up. He says, no, let us, let's go and stand, arise. Let us do this together. Now, the disciples did run. At that point, they failed. Um, one or two followed at a distance. But Jesus, that wasn't Jesus' plan. He says, arise, let us go. And in our personal Gethsemanes and whatever we're facing, Jesus goes before us and is with us. And he says to us, arise, let us go. And whatever you are facing, whatever I am facing today, Jesus says to us, don't run, don't give up, don't give up, don't run away from church, don't run away from prayer. Whatever your flesh is going through, however weak you feel, don't run away from worship, don't run away from the word of God. Amen. Because Jesus is saying to each one of us today, to me and you, Whatever personal Gethsemane that you're going through or you may go through in the future or you've been through in the past, he says, we'll do this together. It's not you, it's you and me doing it together. Arise, let us go. Because he, whatever we're going through, whatever our flesh is like, he has the victory. Amen. So how do we respond to this? Well, um, as I was preparing this, I, was, I, I love... C.H. Spurgeon, I often read his daily notes. And C.H. Spurgeon mentions um, the thing that we read about in Genesis right at the beginning of the Bible and right at the end of the Bible called the Tree of Life. And um, the Tree of Life in the Garden of Eden, we couldn't take part in that. Adam and Eve were not allowed to touch it because they had sinned. But there is a Tree of Life in the book of Revelation. And C.H. Spurgeon talks about it and says that it's a tree that bears fruit every month. And we are to partake of it. As Christians walking in the love and the grace of God and what he's done for us, this tree is something that we can feed off all the time. 
and it's the tree of the grace of God, and it produces its fruit in due season every month. Now, your months may be different each month. You may have a month where things aren't so bad. You may be going through months where it's very difficult. But whatever season you're going through, I think the Lord would say to you, just feed off my grace. There's enough grace for you to get through what you're going through a day at a time, one day at a time. There is always his grace. And that is the tree of life. And I think the Lord would say is, don't run like the men of Ephraim. Don't run away. Don't run away from church. Don't run away from prayer. Don't run away from the situation you're in. Because as Christians, God has already put the weapons of victory on our hands. We already have them, like the men of Ephraim. They're there. And sometimes we can run away and not use them because of unbelief. Because we don't believe what the word has God said. We don't believe in his promises. And we forget how far God has brought us. Just remember, how many of you can remember how, what stuff God has already brought you through in your past? And it's very easy to forget. Sometimes our relationship with God is only as good as yesterday. And we forget the months and the years and the things that he's brought us through in the past. And most of all, remember the presence of Jesus who knows our weaknesses. And yet he sees our journey. And he sees what we will become in his strength and not ours. I have this picture sometimes of me standing before the judgment seat of God and Satan, who's called the accuser of the brethren, is telling God what I've been up to during the previous week. And it's not pretty. You know, God, do you know what Tanya's been thinking this week? The thought she's been thinking of, of other people? Do you know what she's said? Do you know the way she's neglected what she should have been doing for you? The sin in her life, God. You should see the sin in her life. It's absolutely shocking. And God looks at me, and then he looks away at me, and he looks at the Son of God standing by his side. And he looks at the scars and the wounds in Jesus' hands, and he says, no, no, she's covered. She's covered. It's all been taken away. I've taken away the judgment that should have been upon her, and I've taken it away on the cross. That applies to me, and it applies to each one of you here. So however you feel, you may feel you're a failure. You may feel, actually quite full of pride, I can do without God. Um, you may have things in your heart that need to be get, got rid of. Each way, God wants to empty you and me of our failures and of our pride and to fill us with his Holy Spirit um, so that he can humble us, so that he can use us in the way that he used Peter. I'd just like us all to stand together as we finish. And this is the first service. There's, there's lots of life. Is, life can be a real struggle at times. There's issues that we face. And I want to pray for you if you're going through your personal Gethsemane. Because God's word to you today is don't give up. Don't give up on him. Don't give up on church. Don't give up on prayer. Intensify your prayer life. Get on your knees. Cry before God. That's where the battle is won in prayer. Don't try to do it in your own strength. Because God is there for you and he is saying to you today in the in the situation that you and I are in the situation you're in God is saying today come on